This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series looking at AI. My name is Lisa Zegert and I'm the Director of Client Solutions at Hall & Wilcox. I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land I'm speaking on today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people joining us. In today's episode, we are discussing ethical issues around AI, particularly the opportunities and risks for the public sector. I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Julian Hammond, who is a commercial dispute resolution partner here at Hall & Wilcox. Julian, there's a lot of hype, but also fear-mongering around AI at the moment. It does seem like a lot of discussion has focused on what AI and tools such as ChatGTP will mean for private companies. So I'd like to start by asking, what are the opportunities for the public sector arising from the development of AI? Thanks, Lisa. Look, thanks for that question. It's a really good question in the sense that I think in many ways, the public sector has been at the forefront of automated decision-making processes with AI for a number of years. And in contrast to the private sector, which is really coming up to speed in relation to the use and opportunities and innovation available from AI, really the public sector has been using automated decision-making processes as I said, for a number of years. And there are some advanced systems, processes, and regulatory guides that are in place already at both the Commonwealth and the state level in Australia. And so really the thinking is largely more advanced, I think, than private sector thinking. Um, some of you would have seen as well last week that uh, the opportunities probably expend as far as having an MP uh, write their speech to parliament. Uh, Julian Hill, uh, one of the federal MPs last week, gave a speech to parliament in which he uh, delivered it via chat GPT. It was written by chat GPT and I don't think anyone picked it up until the end of the speech when he announced that. So there's opportunities for a bit of innovation in, um, in that regard. But really, I think uh, all of us has probably, uh, probably used some of these AI-enabled services that governments have been using over the last Last few years. So really, if you've gone to a government web page and you've been asked a question by a chatbot, if you've gone and used the ATO self-service portal to submit your tax return, um, or even applied for support in some way from government, uh, you've probably used an AI type service or an automated decision-making process type service that government has in place at either the Commonwealth or the state level. And a lot of these services really aim to make accessing support much easier and quicker for citizens while lifting the burden off government in lots of ways ways in terms of being able to apply staff in different ways rather than just uh, being able to uh, respond uh, to call centres, etc. So it's the opportunities here for really the public sector are pretty rich and varied from the analysis of traffic bottlenecks using data analysis, automated decision making for social services, although there are some significant risks for that and we'll talk about that in relation to robo debt through to tax auditing. Really, um, the opportunities here for the public sector, are, as I said, rich and varied, um, but there are significant risks as well. That's great. There seems to be so much benefit. So what are the risks for the public sector? Look, I think the risks here are significant and we have uh, an ongoing daily exploration of that risk profile via the RoboDebt Royal Commission. Certainly there are benefits to using algorithmic or AI uh, or automated decision making. Uh, these include efficiency, cost savings, operational transparency, but clearly, as we can see through the RoboDebt Royal Commission, its use can also have unintended negative consequences. And this was really the case with Centrelink's online compliance intervention program, which all sounds 
quite banal, but is otherwise known now as RoboDebt. Uh, and so, as many of you may know, listening to this podcast, in June 2021, a federal court judge approved a settlement worth at least $1.8 billion for people wrongfully pursued by the federal government's RoboDebt scheme. And the court discovered during the RoboDebt scheme that the Commonwealth had unlawfully raised $1.73 billion in debts against approximately 433,000 people. Uh, of this, $751 million was wrongly recovered from 381,000 people. And settlement payments to eligible group members involved in the RoboDebt class action uh, were finalised um, in May 2022. So, the issue here with RoboDebt really was that RoboDebt was an automated debt assessment and recovery program that relied solely on a data matching system to issue debt notices to welfare recipients. And the issue here really was that it was matching two different data sets. So the, the data sets really came from income data from the tax office, and it compared that with welfare recipients records. And there were really some problems and flaws in this process. And we can talk about what they were, but that really initiated a cycle of distress among people who were being pursued for debts, which they weren't aware of and didn't think were validly claimed, including people in vulnerable positions. And it caused significant work disruption for Centrelink as well, who run under really what was an unprecedented set of strain due to the surge of contact from citizens in relation to these issues. Um, so really the program here was launched with, as we understand it, financial savings in mind but really it resulted in no financial gain and significant costs. And as we can see on a daily basis through this Royal Commission, the reputation of Centrelink and perhaps broadly the public service more generally now has been tarnished. Uh, and it's really had a, the effect, I think, of eroding public trust in government's ability to manage social services. Uh, ultimately, in the RoboDebt case, the government conceded that the alleged debt was not validly claimed as the information before the decision maker was not capable of satisfying the decision maker that a debt was owed under the relevant provision of the Social Security Act 1991 at the Commonwealth level. And that just really came from the design flaws we talk about. The design flaws in the algorithm, which were used to make debt collection decisions, was that it drew this data from two different government systems, one belonging to Centrelink and the other belonging to the ATO. And these two systems recorded citizens' income data in different formats. So Centrelink system applied fortnightly figures, the ATO stored annual income data. And the algorithm used here averaged a citizen's earnings reported to the ATO over a series of fortnights, matched them with welfare benefits, and based on the matching, calculated potential overpayments. But the formula used fortnightly averages instead of actual earnings. So it led to exaggerated or even in a number of circumstances, false inflation of debt. And the University of Queensland's done a great research piece in relation to this, really as Dr. Tapani Rinta Kahalia says, the debt identification process relied on the automatic matching of two incompatible data sets. And that, so accordingly, the debt sums were based on pure speculation by the system. And so the debt collection process, in turn, in the doctor's view, resembled extortion. Citizens were effectively scared to accept the debt and pay up, and many did. Um, so the algorithm really failed to account for real-life complexities, including it couldn't account for different spellings of employer names in both databases. Uh, so you might have Hall & Wilcox or uh, H&W in the other one, not being able 
able to account for citizens' unique work history circumstances, such as casual work. And so as, you, as we talked about, the averaging effect there would affect that and create exaggeration or even false inflation of a debt. Um, and so many citizens received a robo-debt notice that didn't reflect what they owed to government or whether they owed anything at all. So it's a significant problem and that really identifies many of the significant risks that exist for AI in relation to the public sector. And the consequential effects of this Royal Commission into RoboDebt, I think, can't be understated at the moment, both really, I think, to the way in which AI will be conducted and utilised by the public sector going forward. I suspect there's a significant wariness there now to using AI moving forward for the public sector. And also, I think, really, for the broader public service about um, their role as well in terms of being able to brief up to ministers and some of the uh, requirements of a frank and fearless public service as well and whether they will be impacted by AI. So RoboDebt's really your primary and key example. It's ongoing on a daily basis and you can see it in the news and it's worth following if you have any interest in the way in which AI will be used by the public sector moving forward. Now, in addition to that, there's also a case in 2018, Pinterich and the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation. And that really also illustrated issues that can arise with AI and automated decision-making processes where there's no mental process of reaching a conclusion in relation to it administrative decisions. Uh, the case considered whether a letter issued by the ATO, which was issued by a computer-generated system and had not been reviewed by the ATO's delegate before it was sent, actually amounted to a decision of the ATO. And the majority of the full federal court here concluded that there was no decision um, because, as the federal court found, there needs to be both a mental process of reaching a conclusion and an objective manifestation of that conclusion. And the full federal court stated that as the decision had not been reviewed by the delegate before it was sent, no mental process of reaching a conclusion had occurred and therefore no decision had been made. So there's really a degree of ambiguity as well in case law now as to what constitutes a, constitutes a decision when automated decision-making processes are used as part of that process. So there's significant risks here. Um, these include compliance with administrative law and privacy, ensuring legislation actually allows an automated decision-making process uh, because an automated decision-making process may not be an authorised person for the purpose of a decision of an administrative character. You need some assurance really the algorithm works. As we see with RoboDebt, there's a trust gap there that's arisen as a consequence. The algorithm didn't work there. The data matching was ineffective, incomplete and erroneous. So, you know, really there's a, a, a clear risk there and that appeared to be prioritising cost savings over that risk. Um, the absence of a clear regulatory framework. Uh, there's need for regulation here, and we'll talk about this later, for regulation at a national level in this space, and probably the need for a central regulatory agency as well. So that's a long answer, but I think there are significant risks in this space, and you can see that uh, every day in the news via RoboDebt. Yes, definitely. That's a great example and certainly contributing to the increasing concern about ethics in connection to using AI. So how will the public sector be able to handle these ethical issues arising in AI? Look, there's a, an increasing body of knowledge emerging here. I think if we look at the last example, I think there is really a need for a central regulatory agency and um, uniform regulations across both state and federal level. But there are various government bodies have issued guidance and commentary and automated decision making. And there's a number of better practice guides and reports that can be utilised. The Commonwealth Ombudsman has an automated decision making better practice guide. Um, it gives some guidance as to administration 
administrative law requirements, their obligation to comply with privacy, data security or other legal requirements, and um, the need to be particularly careful when decision-making processes will involve the exercise of a judgment or discretion and using AI in those circumstances. Uh, the Australian Law Reform Commission's issued the Future of Law Reform report, and that really concerns and has some commentary on the future development of these processes. Again, looking at the way in which how decision makers can be identified and disclosed, um, appropriate review mechanisms, and how freedom of information obligations should, should apply. The CSIRO as well actually has an, a, an ethical framework for artificial intelligence, and that really looks at um, whether there is uh, an appropriate ethical framework for AI and provides some ethical commentary on the use of AI and really notes that AI is best only used as a tool to assist human decision makers. Um, and it also suggests there must be a clear chain of accountability for decisions made by an automated system with a clear understanding of who is responsible for decisions made by the system. So there's a few examples there too. Uh, recently in um, New South Wales last year, New South Wales Ombudsman released a report titled The New Machinery of Government using machine technology in administrative decision-making. And that really outlines some of the challenges facing government as well. Uh, look, it really looks at the idea that uh, there are some significant challenges here and um, automated decision-making um, has some real uh, challenges to reach robust levels. And it was prompted by an investigation undertaken by the Ombudsman into Revenue New South Wales over a period of, of nine years between 2010 and 2019. And this focused on Revenue New South Wales use of Ghana she orders and AI and automated decision-making processes to support that. And uh, the Ghana she orders really allow a debt collector who is the Commissioner of Fines Administration in New South Wales to recover debts directly from a financial institution, such as a bank. And they use this automated technology over this period of nine years, uh, and they increased the number of Ghana she orders to 1.6 million. And the reported impact included apparently completely depleting people's accounts, um, which at times held the complainant's only source of income, so from Centrelink, and it would only be from Centrelink and it would be completely depleted as a consequence of the use of the Ghana she order. Um, uh, and so there were significant issues where insufficient attention had been paid to administrative law principles and using this process. And in addition to that, no authorised person uh, was engaged in the mental process of reasoning to reach the state of satisfaction prescribed by the statute to issue that Ghana she order and the discretionary power is not being exercised by the authorised person. So uh, there's some real risks there which are identified by that Ombudsman report. Um, there's also an ethical policy for the New South Wales government as well, which has mandatory ethical principles for the use of AI and an AI user guide. Um, and in addition to that, Australian government um, at the Commonwealth level has a number of different uh, policies and initiatives as well. There's ethical principles also, which are worth looking at. There's eight of them at the Commonwealth level, and they're designed to ensure that AI is safe, secure and reliable. And those principles at a glance really are um, that there should be a focus on human, societal and environmental well-being. There should be human-centred values at the centre of AI. There should be fairness. There should be privacy protection and security. There should be reliability and safety as well. And also transparency and explainability. So disclosure, when people can understand when they're being impacted by AI. Uh, contestability as well and accountability. So they're the principles that are at the Commonwealth level. But really where we get to, I think, with these ethical questions is the need for a central regulatory agency and the likely um, forthcoming development of that. And we'll see that when looking at some uh, overseas examples shortly as well. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that progresses. 
Uh, and you mentioned fairness there as well. So how has fairness achieved in AI decision making for government? Look, it's probably no different to the way in which it would be achieved in the private sector. There's probably a couple of ways to define a fair algorithm. There's algorithmic fairness, and that really reflects um, an interest in bias-free decision-making when protected classes of individuals are involved or ensuring that there's not disparate impact on protected classes. So really, algorithmic fairness is really the first issue. And it's really what you need to do here is really define what fairness means in the specific context of the use case here. So you might approach this by having either willful blindness in your algorithm, so um, building a kind of blindness in there. So it treats subgroups the the same, regardless of distinctions between them. So for example, race or gender, um, or having demographic or statistical parity. So um, really having that parity built into decisions being enabled in the outcomes. or predictive equality as well. So that's the view, the view most um, generally between developers is that predictive equality is the most balanced approach to take adre- um, to address fairness is to not force it in decision outcome, but rather in the algorithm's performance or accuracy across different groups. So there's a couple of ways to approach that. Really, I think the, the view here is not to disproportionately favor or affect either gender or race um, or any of those socioeconomic factors that could be protected and to ensure that the algorithm makes the same rate of mistakes or errors in its selection. um, And that's the best way to achieve fairness. Excellent. So you've also mentioned that uh, there's an element of transparency uh, that's needed. Does trust in these systems mean transparency? Look, ultimately, yes, I think so. The simple answer to that is trust in these systems means transparency to ensure that people, uh, when AI significantly impacts a person, they, they're aware of how it impacts them, really. So there's some um, idea of transparency and explainability. And looking back at those Commonwealth principles there, uh, those Commonwealth principles really do embed that idea of transparency and explainability as one of the clear principles to be adopted in use of AI systems. Um, And that really is about, as I said, transparency and disclosure so people understand when they are being impacted by by AI and can find out when an AI system is engaging with them. So the short answer to your question really is yes. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, And something I'm really curious about is whether government should release source coding. Uh, Are there risks involved with this? Look, really, uh, I think as part of the building upon of that transparency um, uh, principle that governments will soon be required to release source coding in respect of uh, the way AI works. Uh, There are, again, significant risks involved with this. And uh, look, I think the most clear one would be security breaches arising as a consequence of the release of source coding and the need to embed vigilant cybersecurity mechanisms in respect of that. And as you would well know, Lisa, we have Eden Winokur at our firm, who's a cybersecurity expert and is someone who has great ability um, in developing cybersecurity systems and working in respect of those systems in a framework to support um, and assist with security breaches and is someone um, who will be heavily involved, I think, in this moving forward. But I think the risks here are really centred around security breaches arising as a consequence of the release of the source coding. So I think the issues go hand in hand. Transparency requires the release of source coding, but the risk there is that you would need to be extraordinarily vigilant around cybersecurity to ensure that there weren't breaches um, of that system as a consequence of the release of source coding. No, that's true. I think um, that's already a concern with cybersecurity breaches. So what kind of governments arrangements should public sector entities look at? 
Look, I think if we look back at the the resources I talked about earlier around the policy guides and ethical principles and frameworks, those are the current sets of um, frameworks and governance arrangements that are a minimum standard for public sector agencies to follow. So look at your your state um, or Commonwealth level principles to ensure that you are in compliance with those and ensure that um, they're provided as part of briefing to any of your ministers who are interested in AI-related processes. Um, and, and really, I think, look to whatever the outcomes are of the RoboDebt Royal Commission, both in respect of um, governance arrangements for use of automated decision-making processes, recommendations arising for that, and also, I think, some uh, recommendations about the way in which the public service should, op- should operate in terms of briefing in respect of automated decision-making processes as well. But more broadly, I think there should be some thought given to the way in which regulatory processes uh, will emerge and develop over the next few years. I think uh, the better view here is that there will be uh, a Commonwealth agency that perhaps will cover the field here in respect of AI. I think that's a better outcome, more likely than having disparate resources and regulations at state and federal level, as there currently are really in disparate use cases. I think having a central agency at the Commonwealth level would likely be a better regulatory outcome here, but we'll see what happens in that in that space. But really giving some thought to the development of that and what that might look like will ensure public sector entities are ready for what's coming. They mentioned that there are some overseas examples. Uh, What are those examples that the Australian public sector bodies can draw on? Look, I think uh, some of the most recent examples really look at the US and the EU uh, aligning in relation to a more proactive stance by government towards AI regulation and really bringing the US closer to that of the uh, the EU. And um, uh, look, I think really the, the Biden administration at the US level has really started to pick the pace of change up in respect of regulation in that regard. The Federal Trade Commission has um, started a rulemaking process in relation to a use of uh, AI and AI discrimination and fraud and data misuse in relation to that. Um, There's also been the reversing of a Trump administration rule that effectively shielded housing-related decisions from the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the US from claims of discrimination. They were using AI and algorithms in respective decisions, and that's been reversed there so that there there is a review process that's available now as well. Um, The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the US also has announced it will launch an initiative to enforce hiring and workplace protections on AI systems and uh, financial regulators in the US have started an inquiry into AI practices in financial institutions to look at the way that may affect risk management, fair lending and creditworthiness. And also lastly, the National Institute for Standards and Technologies in the process of developing an AI risk management framework. So what you're really seeing is this emerging policy landscape in the US, which will likely lead the field, I think, aligning with the EU to reflect greater progress towards a significant governmental role in protecting citizens from AI harms. And so look, perhaps answering this last question about examples, I also asked our our friend ChatGPT, should AI be regulated? And the answer was, Yes, AI should be regulated. Regulation should be put in place to ensure that AI systems are not used in ways that could be deemed unethical, such as discriminatory practices or manipulation of data. Regulation should also be in place to ensure that AI systems are not used to cause harm or commit crimes. Additionally, regulation should be in place to ensure that AI systems are developed responsibly and with consideration for the safety of users. So if we leave the last word to um, chat GPT, I think that's a, a fair summary of the 
way in which regulation will develop. And as you can see with those overseas examples, where regulation will get to. And I think the US will start to lead the field there under the Biden administration and the pace of change will continue to accelerate further. Fascinating. Thank you, Julian, for joining me today and thanks everyone for listening. As always, please get in touch if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, which is www.hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with Hall and Wilcox on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please rate, review or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.